Available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome to Outlook. I'm Sheila Allen, and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday, March the 8th, 2023. And coming up in the next 90 minutes or so, we have got Margaret taking us to another interesting place within the city. Bill reads the second part of an article about Roy Grace and car boot sales. Cynthia Townsend has got another short story. And Nigel's going to tell us about Hadrian's Wall, plus Sarah talking about the blind football team, plus, of course, all of your usual features, such as sport and postbag. But first, we start with a review of the last week's local news with myself and Elaine. Outlook News. A new gallery, cafe, library and exhibition space will make up part of the city's former IKEA building as Coventry University jumps on board. The university will take over the top two floors of the huge city centre building, which is being transformed into a city centre cultural gateway. The plans for the cultural centre have been submitted by Coventry City Council and would also see Arts Council England and the British Council move in, bringing their current collections to the building in Croft Road. This would see huge venue become home to some of the country's greatest works of art and provide greater public access to Coventry's own cultural and heritage collections. The university's plans would see them provide a new home for the institution's fab lab, which supports local people and businesses to learn new skills and could lead to a range of new arts and heritage courses, including short courses, being offered. If approved, the hub could open in autumn 2025. Judith Mossman, Pro-Vice-Chancellor at Coventry University's Faculty of Arts and Humanities, said, This is all about allowing everyone whether they be students or members of the community, to engage with culture at any level. This will be of huge benefit to Coventry and we will be accessible to the public. The university is a big part of the city and we want people to feel that they too can use the campus. The space itself is enormous but it's incredibly flexible. It was divided into different rooms when it was set up as IKEA so it can be fitted out in different ways. In my opinion, this is a handsome building and a landmark building in the city. It was sad when IKEA left, but we believe we have come up with an imaginative solution to bring it back to life for the benefit of students and the wider community. Protesters have climbed trees in Potters Green to stop them from being cut down in a long-standing battle with developers over new housing being built in the area. They took to the trees in Elmfield Farms in a bid to stop them being felled as part of a social housing development project. Developers are building 148 affordable, energy-efficient homes in the area, helping residents combat the rising cost of living with lower energy costs. They said once the plans are complete, there will be more trees in the area than before, and that significant work is ongoing to enhance the biodiversity in the area. 
However, some residents in the local area are furious over the plans. They raise concerns over the impact on beauty spots and wildlife. One resident, Paul, who lives opposite the development, he took part in recent protests where locals sat on trees to stop the contractors from chopping them down. Martina Irwin, a member of the Tree Protectors who are staging the protests, told Coventry Live, Elmfield's farm has been an integral part of the community for decades. People who are affected by the development are not being listened to. Farm owners own a Senate to the Council for Social Housing Development. There is a large oak tree on the border with three or four other trees that are established and mature. On the border of Paul's garden next to those trees is an established pond. He said he doesn't want this tree cut down. We believe a pond in the location is not only good for wildlife, it's good aspect aesthetically. They should have a retention of some of the natural features like that. On the original plan, that pond and the surrounding trees was retained, but a revision was made at a later date where the pond and its features were removed in favour of putting more property around there. Coventry could be on the verge of getting two new train stations, and the news has split opinion among Coventry Live readers. Transport for West Midlands and the West Midlands Rail Executive have revealed plans for five new stations in the Midlands, including two here in the city. They would be at Coventry East, Bindley, on the main line between Coventry and Rugby, and at Foleshill on the Coventry to Nuneaton line. Business cases are currently being put together. The news comes not long after the opening of Coventry's new city centre station. And a number of people had their say on the Coventry Live Facebook page, including Tracy Hughes, who said, Will it be in the same place as the last one that was closed? That would be handy. Carrie-Anne Caress added, I hope they design them better than the new Cov station regarding taxis, cars, buses, all having to exit onto a busy roundabout. Another to air their opinion was Neil Writing, who said, more stops mean slower trains, while John Fletcher said, better get some new trains on the Nuneaton line then. Andy Street, Mayor of the West Midlands and Chair of WMRE, said, New stations are taking shape across Birmingham and the Black Country, with diggers in the ground after our success in securing funding. Alongside these projects now underway, we're turning our attention to the next set of stations, and these five are a good place to start. Investing in rail stations is levelling up in action, helping to regenerate local areas and offer a convenient alternative to the car and driving job creation. An eight-year-old girl from Coventry has designed a road safety sign which will be installed in the city. Leila Jones and her classmates at Kersley Grange Primary Academy were tasked with designing a speed safety sign, encouraging drivers to slow down. Construction firm Taylor Wimpy teamed up with the school for the project, and Leila's winning design will be installed on the builder's development, Apple Down Gate, just a mile and a half from the school. The schoolgirl also received a £50 voucher, and will get to see her drawing brought to life. Taylor Wimpy has also printed an additional copy of the sign to be displayed on the school gates and encouraged drivers to slow down to help keep the children safe. 
John Astley, deputy head teacher at Kersley Grange Primary Academy, said, Our pupils had a fantastic time designing their speed signs. They should all be very proud of themselves. But Layla deserves a massive well done for impressing Taylor Wimpy with her winning design. We are grateful for Taylor Wimpy for giving our pupils the opportunity to unleash their creativity while also making a real difference to road safety in the local area. We have already welcomed many families to our school from Appledowngate and so these signs will help keep all of our communities safe. A new shop in Coventry that will raise vital funds for an animal charity moved a step closer to opening thanks to the hard work of volunteers from UK Flooring Direct. RSPCA Coventry and District Branch needs to raise £40,000 a month to run its rehoming centre with its main source of income coming from its shops in Orsley, Wykin and Earlston. The £100,000 a year they collectively generate keeps the Cowden Wedge Drive based operation running for approximately two and a half months. Now a fourth shop under the charity's banner is set to open in the Cowden area of the city by the end of February. It's been all hands on deck at the Norman Place Road building to provide it with a new lease of life and significant help was provided from UK Flooring Direct. Employees Manash Praka, Trade Assistant Manager and Gavin Pearson, Internal Sales Consultant, rolled up their sleeves as part of the leading floor retailers employer supported volunteering programme. Their contribution towards the redecoration project helped bring forward the expected opening day that will allow the charity to commence raising vital funds sooner than expected. Charlotte Hawthorne, RSPCA volunteer coordinator, said, Manesh and Gavin were absolutely brilliant. They did a lot of painting around the shop and livened it up and gave it a new lease of life, really. We didn't expect them to get as much done as they did. They finished it all and we were so chuffed. Once open, the, book, the shop will sell clothes, books, houseware, crockery, electrical items and be welcoming donations from the general public. The shops are massively important to us, added Charlotte. People don't realise how much they are supporting us when they donate items. We sell them for profit that automatically comes straight to us here at the centre. At all of our shops, we only have one paid staff member per shop. All the rest are volunteers. There's no way we would be able to do it, do all of it on our own. We'd have to do it in our own time or find other volunteers who would be able to do it. The fruit and vegetable shortage is causing prices to surge, say Coventry's independent shopkeepers. Business owners have spoken of their concerns as the price of items such as tomatoes and onions increases. Arif, who runs the Halal Meat Centre in the heart of the city, said the shortage is challenging for him at the moment. He said, there is more of a shortage of tomatoes, bell peppers and onions. The markets have it, but now it's more expensive. Before we used to pay £8, now we pay £16 a box. In his shop, he was selling things before for three pieces for a pound. Now he sells some things for 3 99 a kilo for some fruits. Another shopkeeper in the city has also raised concerns over high prices. Mazdu Atia runs ADG Enterprises on the High Street. Mr Atia said the prices are just too high. 
Prices are high. Customers are arguing with me about why prices are so high. It's hard for me right now. A lot of my customers are African and Asian, and they have always supported me. We used to sell tubs, of, sell tubs for a pound of either fruit or veg, but now we've had to increase this to two pounds. There are no good quality products either. Before it was good, now quality-wise it's very bad. In February, shoppers saw a shortage across the UK of fruit and vegetables supplies in popular supermarkets such as Asda and Morrison's, which was caused by poor weather conditions abroad in countries such as Spain and Morocco. The National Farmers Union have said that these fruit and vegetable shortages could be the tip of the iceberg, as the reliance on imports has left the UK in a very risky situation. Coventry Council was forced to deny it wants to put microchips in Coventry residents' bins after the idea appeared in a key document last week. A bid to bug bins and get data on recycling rates in the city was included as a proposal for action in the Council's draft climate change strategy launched last month. But Conservative councillors slammed the idea as a snooper's charter after a scrutiny meeting to debate the strategy on Wednesday, the 1st of March. In a press release, Group Leader Councillor Gary Ridley said, We should do all we can to support and encourage recycling, but this sounds like something from an authoritarian state that distrusts its own citizens. But days later, after an inquiry from the local department, Democracy Reporting Service, a council spokesperson said, We have absolutely no intention of microchipping bins now or in the future. When the LDRS asked why the idea was in the council's climate strategy, the document's online version was edited to remove all reference to the tech. The original policy was to review the technology to develop a detailed understanding of the efficacy of waste collection and recycling participation rates in relation to neighbourhoods or individual households to provide a valuable insight for future targeted actions. Online, this now reads, to develop a detailed understanding of the efficacy of waste collection and recycling participation rates to provide valuable insight to enable recycling rates to be increased. However, the first wording of the policy can still be seen in papers for last week's scrutiny meeting, where the strategy was debated. A council spokesperson claimed the policy was included due to an oversight by an officer. They said officer oversight led to a reference about microchipping bins being included in our draft climate change strategy. This is not and never has been council policy. The strategy is out for consultation, giving the opportunity for changes to be made. Forty years ago, one newbie from Coventry was sitting at his kitchen table when an idea spurred his mind he decided to start a small sponsorship business. After a recent visit to post-conflict Uganda, he couldn't get the abandoned children he had seen out of his mind and wanted to do something positive. Unable to interest existing charities, he decided to do it himself and badgered family and friends to help. That's when Global Care was born. 
an international Christian charity which has worked alongside the most marginalised children for over 40 years and empowered local people to work on projects which work in their community. Now, Global Care starts a year of 40th anniversary celebrations with the launch of their anniversary appeal, filling in the gaps for girls. A year-long effort to raise £100,000 to meet the needs of marginalised girls. CEO John White said, For 40 years we have been helping to inch closer the gender gap because all the evidence shows that when girls flourish, the whole community thrives. But COVID has undone decades of progress and gender inequality is now widening, not reducing. We can't just ignore that. Our motto has always been, we can't do everything, we mustn't do nothing, we can do something. This appeal will help us do something to help girls get back on track. In support of the anniversary appeal, the charity has a full programme of events, including a spring ball at Nailcut Hall in May and a sponsored walk around Coventry in July. Global Care outgrew the kitchen table many years ago, but is still based in Coventry, in a former bank building on the corner of Radford Road and Dugdale Road. We're proud of our achievements over 40 years, says John, but the journey is far from over. Even though the world has changed hugely in the last four decades, the most vulnerable children need us as much as ever. We're going to celebrate this year, but also keep pushing forward to change lives, restore hope, and help marginalised children build a better future. It's why we exist. A young National Express Coventry trainee has become a driving sensation after passing his bus driving test at the age of 18 with no minor faults. Luke Brown took to the wheel after being inspired by his dad, Stuart, who is also a bus driver at the same bus company. He has been based at the Coventry Garage for more than 20 years. After completing his driving training, Luke passed his passenger carrying vehicle licence for the first time, and with no minors. He is now a qualified bus driver for National Express Coventry. Luke said, It feels great to have passed with no minors. I put a lot of time and effort into practising for the test, so it's very satisfying to know my hard work has paid off. Having a supportive team around me has helped a lot. During my training, no question was too silly, and my instructor was calm and informative, so I didn't feel pressured at all, which I believe has really spurred on my development. Darren Dunbar, National Express Coventry's driver training officer, added, To pass a PCV licence at 18 years of age and with zero minors is a major achievement. Each year we have hundreds of drivers start training. Out of these, only about two or three pass their test without fault. We were not surprised by Luke's result. He puts 100% into everything he does and that definitely shows in his driving. I'm really pleased for him. He's a lovely guy and a great asset to the garage. Luke said he was looking forward to spending more time on the road, helping more people get around and working alongside his dad. Although now there is a bit of competition between me and dad for who's the better driver. A busy Coventry crossroads is set to finally get pedestrian crossings that residents have been campaigning for since 2021. 
People have long complained about the lack of help for people wait, wanting to cross the road at the junction of Sewell Highway and Blackberry Lane. It was back in April 2021 that those living nearby called for the crossings as they did not feel safe. The junction has seen five collisions in just three years, including one in involving a pedestrian. Currently, only traffic lights occupies the junction to stop cars, but a lack of signal control crossing means residents have to second-guess when it is going to change to green, according to a petition organiser, Ian Rogers. Ian, founder of the Coventry Citizens Party, said, Residents have told us they don't feel safe or comfortable crossing that road, as you have to guess when the light is going to change. If you come to the lights and you are about to cross and it's red, you don't step out in case it suddenly turns green. He has also sent a letter to Coventry City Council to ask why a new crossing has not been installed yet, despite starting resurfacing work. When asked for comment by Coventry Live, a spokesman for the City Council said, The above location will be upgraded this financial year. A design of the new arrangement has been completed and has gone to our signal contractor for procurement of equipment. All signal equipment will be replaced and pedestrian facilities will be included in the new system. Tactile paving will be installed to each pedestrian crossing point along with audible and tactile indicators to the push buttons to assist the visually impaired. Outlook News So thank you to Elaine for helping me with the news once again. Um, I think it's a mix of stories, but some interesting bits there, I thought. Um, not many announcements, in fact, I haven't got any really. Sunrise and sunset, but it's a bit dark and gloomy today, but it's definitely getting lighter. So it's at 20 to 7 in the morning, the sun comes up, that's before I'm up, and then about 20 to 6 at night, except when it's dark like this, and it seems darker even earlier, and we put the lights on at home. So that's really all. The only other thing I was going to say is, um, now there's not so many of us doing um, the the program for you we're struggling a bit for ideas of what to put in it so if you have anything that you'd like to hear us do for you or if you've got anything you'd like to sort of send in that we can put on so that other people can listen to do let us know um you know they don't have to be mildly original ideas but some, something a little bit different perhaps so give it some thought and if it doesn't get you curse you that you'd like to hear us try and do we can't promise but we'll, we'll try our best to find some articles about that particular subject now, something we do always like to hear every week is what's going on in the Resource Centre. So, here's Hugh. Well, on the subject of unoriginality, oh. um, I, I really haven't got... I, I said this last week, and <laughs> I said this the week before, that I haven't really got <laughs> much on the news to add. It's because I waffle. <laughs> it's one of my That's a necessary habits. contribution to the programme. A bit of waffle. A bit of waffle. Um, right, I'm to remind you about uh, the coronation tea that mm. we're going to do on the uh, Friday the 5th of May. It'll be in the afternoon here at the Resource Centre. Um, if you would like to sign up for that, please do give Heather a call on 024 7621 uh, She will put you down on her list, one of her many, and uh, she... Um, Anyway, it'll be a pleasant afternoon. Mm. Um, buses will be provided, uh, so you need to talk to her about uh, get about a bus as well. Um, so it should be a you know mm. a kind of going to be a jolly afternoon. Yes. We're, we're not going to yes. take it too seriously, um, but uh, you know we'll just you know have a bit of flag it's waving. A tea party, isn't it? Yeah, tea party. Mm. It'll be it'll be lovely. 
Uh, now, before that, on m- m- um, March the 28th, uh, the uh, Resource Centre will be taking part in the Spring, Bo- Spring Board Festival at the uh, Criterion Theatre. The Spring Board Festival is a new, new thing where they are uh, hoping to uh, encourage uh, new writing uh, and get it performed on the stage. And of course, our creative writing group is all about new writing. Uh, many of you will have seen uh, or heard the work from the creative writing group uh, being performed before. We did that at the November Nights um, event at the uh, at the Elston Park Village last November, uh, and uh, we did it when we launched the creative writing book. Um, at, well, gosh, that's a year and a half ago now. So uh, tickets for that are £12.50. Um, we will be doing a minibus as well. So if you'd like to come to that and listen, um, it will be really good fun, I'm sure, uh, and be uh, really great to hear. We've got all the actors who've ever done it before mm. actually involved. So uh, that includes me. Uh, so and we start our first rehearsals tonight. Oh. So there we are. Um, yeah, tickets are £12.50. Uh, if you need the bus, that'll be um, an additional £6. And you know we'll we'll sort out the details a bit closer to the time. Um, the doors it's, it's a bit nippy at the moment, it is and it's going to be yeah. nippy for a yeah. few days. Um, so uh, please, everybody, uh, can you make sure that you're in in the centre? And certainly, if you're going out the back door and into into the Mary Beale room, can you please close the doors? Because that, that draft don't half whistle through. I can tell you, <laughs> yes. and it's fairly fairly chilly around the trough. Oh yeah, you know. yes. Um, now, a little message um, here. If you've, uh, I think, generally from the talking newspaper itself, um, some people are saying that they're, you know, they're not getting the talking newspaper quite as often as they uh, as they used to, because their wallets are going a little bit astray. Um, sometimes through the post. I mean, the postal system, alas, is not quite as reliable as once it was. You know, it used to be that oh, it's been lost in the post was, uh, you know, was a little bit of a, you know, a, a, a feeble excuse. Yeah. These days, not so much. Anyway. Um, if you are somebody who regularly attends the centre, uh, really, it's just as easy, just as easy to uh, bring the wallets in and uh, you can be guaranteed yeah, that yeah. they'll have been delivered. So it's a good idea to do that. Um, and on that note, I think I'm That's going it. to stop. Um, I will hope definitely to have something more interesting for you <laughs> next week. It's always lovely to hear you, even if you haven't got a lot of anything exciting to tell us. <laughs> Thank you very much Thank to you. you for that. All right, now we have got, as usual, Sarah finding out what's going on in the sporting world this week. Outlook Sport. Well, hi there, listeners. It's Sarah with Sport. Now, I'll start off, as usual, with the torrid tales of the round ball, e.g. football. Anyway, following the somewhat lacklustre 0-0 draw away to Preston North End last Tuesday, Coventry City travelled back up north, but this time to Huddersfield. And I must just give a big mention to the 19-year-old debutante. Now, a lot of new players you think of, oh, where did he come from? Barcelona? Madrid? Paris? No, he came from, he comes from Nuneaton. 
and he did very well, I have to say. Anyway, Coventry managed to score in the first half, thanks to what can only be called a cock-up on the Huddersfield defence side. And you've guessed it, it was that man who spells his name with a G, Victor Jokerez, who also scored a third goal, but not before Gustavo Hamer had added a fantastic second shortly after kick-off for the second half. It was tightly angled, but just managed to chip it over the goalie's head. Oh, yes, and then Tyler Walker was substituted on towards the end of the match. And that man who spells his name with a G, our friend Victor, managed to set up a wonderful pass with a scoring opportunity for Tyler. 4-0 Coventry City which prompted Steve Grizovich to comment on CWR injury crisis. What injury crisis? It's well known, actually, that Coventry City are basically lacking most of their midfielders who are all out with some form of injury. But never mind, Coventry are up to eighth in the league. We've only got to get to six, and we're in the playoffs, and it is dreadfully tight. Now, while I'm talking about the city and who else, can I just say a big congratulations to Mark Robbins. He's about to pass his sixth year in charge of the club. Now, some of you may remember, for years and years and years, Coventry City Managership was just like the hot potato. It was a revolving door. They'd come and they'd go. They'd rarely stay even a year. So for Mark to make six years, and I believe he's the second longest serving manager in our division, the championship, that is pretty damn good. And Mark, please don't go anywhere because you're doing good now. Right. Changing shape of ball just briefly, Coventry Rugby Club took on London Scottish again. You know, they seem to have played them a heck of a lot, but it's been the Championship Cup twice recently. Anyway, they ran Coventry won 31 points to 13. So well done, Cov, and you are now back up to third in your division, which is absolutely amazing considering they didn't have a very good season last year. Hey-ho. Now, going back to the round ball and moving down a few leagues. Leamington, who you're aware are really battling for survival in the Northern Premier, were 2-0 up by half-time against Burton Ashton. However, the final score was 4-1. Hang on, hang on, 4-1. Oh yes, 4-1 to the breaks. And they are that Leamington are now out of the relegation zone. So keep it up, boys, you're doing well. However, in the Southern Premier, also fighting this time for promotion, 
Nuneaton lost away to Russell. 3-0. Bad day at the office there, Nuneaton. However, at the very bottom of the Southern Premier, Stratford were away down in Suffolk at Needham Market. No, I've never heard of it either. And came away with a 1-0 victory. So again, Stratford are off the bottom. Come on, Stratford. However, moving down to the real non, non-leaguers, the conference as it's called, pride of place must go to Racing Club Warwick, who beat Hensford 6-2. Mm. However, it was a bit of a mix and match for our other clubs. Rugby Town, after their usual run of really high-scoring wins, drew 2-2. Coventry Sphinx drew nil-nil and Coventry United lost away to Pagnell Town 3-1. And sadly, Coventry United women also lost away at Durham on the Sunday in the Women's Championship, beaten 5-1. I'm sorry, Coventry women, but... It really doesn't look as if you're going to make the big escape that you made last year. Hey-ho. Now, moving on to other sports, and apologies for any of you who've already heard this on various news channels, but I've got sort of mixed thoughts about this. Novak Djokovic won't be able to play in the, in the Indian Wells Open Why? Because he still hasn't had his COVID vaccination. So while I'm very sorry that we won't be seeing the world number one in this major tennis tournament, it's like, come on, Novak, just, you know, enough people by now have had the COVID vaccination to prove it's safe. Come on, get a grip. Mind you, apparently they're saying that America may be, may be changing its rules shortly so he'll be able to play in the US Open anyway. And while we're on the subject of tennis, the Billie Jean Cup qualifier is coming to the Coventry Building Society Arena. Now this tournament, as you may remember, is kind of best described as the women's equivalent of the Ryder of the Davis Cup. Yes, folks, I did nearly say Ryder Cup, but that's golf. And it's coming to the CBS Arena April the 14th to the 15th. Now, I'm quite tempted to go because although my vision can't track the ball as such, I think the crowd atmosphere in that indoor arena will be absolutely amazing. And we're not taking on some run-of-the-mill country. We're taking on the country no less than France. So, who knows who we may see and what we may get. Now, big congratulations. I'm now on World Athletics indoor to our trio of Golden Girls. Keely Hodgkinson, Laura Muir and Jasmine Sawyer. 
with Laura taking gold in the 1500 metres, Keeley taking gold in the 800 metres, and Jasmine taking gold in the long jump. Jasmine was also the captain of the team. Anyway, well done, ladies. And I have to say, it can't be any fun running three, running 1500 metres on an indoor track because you're only going straight for about 50 metres before you turn in the corner again. So you're talking eight laps of a track, a little indoor track. Nah, not my bag. And finally, have you ever heard of Cornelius Kirsten? Well, he won the first medal for 72 years at the World Indoor Speed Skating Championship taking a bronze in the 1500 metres. Well, Cornelius, best of luck and just carry on till the Olympics. Anyway, folks, that was your sport. Thanks very much to Sarah for that. And without further ado, we will move on to your part of the programme. Here's Dave with Postbag. This is Postbag. Hello there and welcome to your postbag. Please tell us what you've been doing in life. Graham Whale, he likes listening to the radio. He talks about a radio station for the baby boomers generation. It's on the internet. Radio Boom. It was interesting to hear the item about Zoom Radio and the effects that it might have on the BBC. Um, Yes, it's interesting, uh, very interesting that they are taking listeners away from the BBC. I don't know, I think the BBC have lost their way at the moment. Every time they trail a programme now, the first thing they say is sounds, BBC sounds, before they even mention the channel which the programme is actually on. In fact, very often they don't actually mention the channel which the programme is on, they just refer to BBC sounds. And I don't know, they're in a world of their own, I think. Sadly, I don't think this move to internet radio is, or is going to have uh, the effect that uh, some of us wished it would do on the BBC. I think they will go on and on and on as they are doing at the moment. But there you go. Well, Graham, if I wake up in the small hours of the morning, I sometimes listen to a bit of BBC World Service on Neighbour Kevin's homemade radio. About 5am I might listen to BBC local radio, but after Sue's report, I listen to Boom Radio on my mobile phone by asking Google for it. And I quite enjoyed it. So what radio stations do you listen to on a radio? And also, do you listen to BBC sounds on the internet? Do you think the BBC is spreading their net a bit wide by uh, broadcast, broadcasting on the internet too? I enjoyed listening to YouTube mixes of our favourite music with Sheila being in a hospital bed. But you can't beat a bit of live music, can you? Mark Howell has this report on a brilliant morning of entertainment. 
Monday 27th of February, Visibly Sound Band did a concert for the Monday Club. Dave Monks introduced the band, then Annette said that Chris and Claire were on guitar, Carol on single drum, Mark on maracas and tambourine, Richard on sax, and there were three singers. The first song was the African medley. second song was Country Roads, the third was Three Little Birds, and so on. At the end, we got a round of applause. Annette thanked them for inviting us to play for them, and we hope they enjoyed listening to us singing. It was a pleasure. We we certainly did enjoy it. Thank you. That song was in a similar vein to the song at the end of Sheila's packed funeral. Always look on the bright side of life, which we sang along to. Here's a report from Julia. Farewell to Sheila. It was the funeral today. The quem was full, and the people had to stand at the back, but not me. I had the last chair, and my friend Jen had to stand. Paul, Sheila's son, did the introduction to the service, and David gave the final thoughts. But the trouble is, when you're a bit mutton Jeff, is that I couldn't really hear what was being said. I'm sure they said nice things, though. Uh, There was a hymn, and a Cliff Richard. He sang a song. Then there was a poem about trees. The bit I remembered most was the music at the end. It was Monty Python's Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. I knew that song and sang bits of it. I can't do the whistly bits, though. My friend Edwina and Mark were there, too. I don't know if they sang. I expect Edwina did. We went to the Phantom Coach afterwards, but nobody got drunk or got arrested. I had a J2O and some food. I'll miss poor old Sheila. She was a lovely lady and raised a lot of money for charity. Julia. Thank you, Julia. I'll certainly miss her. Uh, I dropped through your door before the funeral the order of the service and my speech. And I hope you will have received by now the other speeches. And if you came to the funeral and supported her, and also maybe donated to her memory, thank you so much. We received some lovely comments about how lovely the service was. Thank you very much. And Graham Whale gives you this tribute to a friend who both Sheila and myself loved and admired, Gail Taylor.
I'm sorry to hear the death of uh, Gail Taylor. Um, I have spoken to her in the past. We were both radio amateurs, and uh, I've spoken to her when I used to go on the Radio Amateur Invalid and Blind Club, which I haven't been at then. They used to have a net every Wednesday afternoon on 80 metres. Um, or was it 40? I can't remember now. Anyway, I haven't done so for some years, actually, so I haven't spoken to her for some years. But um, she's done well in life under her circumstances, done very well. And it's just sad that that life has had to come to an end. As so many people within my field at the moment, of a few people I know who have passed away over the last few months, and I'm getting worried about it. Thank you, Graham. Gail had a great interest and knowledge in music. Showbiz people took a great interest in her. Her godfather was Welsh singer Sir Geraint Evans. His friend Sir Harry Seacombe wrote and recorded the foreword of her autobiography, My World, which you can find in the Resource Centre Library on five CDs. Phil Bailey of Earth, Wind and Fire sang a gospel song at her confirmation and Paul McCartney recorded the cassette tape especially for her calling it Paul McCartney Unplugged with the message Keep rocking Gail She loved listening to Outlook where she could contribute to its in post bag It was a great privilege to know you Gail as a listener and friend and to Graham let's try to keep rocking as long as possible and now we welcome a new contributor to Postbag Roz and she was recorded by Sarah Hello everybody Um, I'm 84 I have a sister who's 87 and a few years ago we were having a jokey conversation about the joys of growing old Um, hearing aids glasses dentures, appointments, checkups, you name it, we had to do it. But it was a jokey conversation and a couple of weeks later she sent me a little card that she'd picked up in a gift shop and it had this poem on it and we've laughed about it ever since. So here goes. Old age is golden, or so I've heard said. But at night time, when I'm getting ready for bed, put your ears in the drawer, your teeth in a cup, your eyes on the table until you wake up. Ere I fall asleep, I say to myself, is there anything else that should go on the shelf? When I was young, my slippers were red and I could kick my heels right above my head. As I grew older, my slippers were blue, and I could dance the whole night through. Now I am old. My slippers are black. I walk to the shops, and I shuffle back. I wake up each morning and gather my wits. I pick up the paper and read the obits. If my name's not down there, I'll know I'm not dead. So I'll have a good breakfast and go back to bed. And that just about sums it up. 
Thank you so much, Ross. You were great. Please feel free to talk to us again. And thanks to Sarah for recording it. I like your interview with John and also Chris and Claire, Sarah. And talking of Sarah, here she is with a problem which you might be able to help or advise you on. It's about buses talking to you. Hello folks, it's Sarah here again, but not with sport this time. I'm ringing in as a listener and I'm afraid I'm going to have a bit of a rant. I am getting so fed up of going on buses which I know should have the voice announcer, but for some reason haven't. Now, grant you... Sometimes I just look at the state of the bus and think, well, it's an older bus. It probably hasn't got the technology. But most times, I believe it's just driver laziness, can't be bothered or it gets on their nerves. Because when I raise it with the drivers, which I try to do if appropriate, they just sort of shrug the shoulders or laugh at me. Has anybody got any idea about what I can do because although my vision is usually okay if it's a bright sunny day or getting very dusky I really find the bus stop announcers really helpful okay folks bye thank you Sarah if you travel on buses tell us of your experiences of hearing the destination stop announcements or not. And what can you do about it? Thank you for your messages this week. Please let's hear from you next time. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Thanks, Dave, and all the contributors. It's always lovely to hear from you and have your thoughts, so do keep them coming in. Now, Margaret's continuing her tour of interesting places within the city, and this week she's going to take us to Cowndon Hall on the Tamworth Road. County Hall is the only 18th century public building in Coventry to survive. It was built next to the jail in 1783-84 and opened in March 1785. It was designed by Samuel Eglinton in the classical style with a frontage of grey stone rusticated at ground level with Roman Doric columns and pediments above. The building functioned as the Assizes Court for the Old County and City of Coventry, which was abolished in 1842, and afterwards it came under Warwickshire. Adjoining County Hall facing Pepper Lane is the former prison governor's house. The whole prison was rebuilt and enlarged in 1772-73, and the governor's house dates from this period. The main courtroom rises through both storeys of the building. The windows are in the upper level. The fittings, which include a gallery with cast iron railings, date mostly from 1840s when it was improved for use as an assize court.
Below are old cells, but they have been blocked off as unstable. Before its refitting by architect Stedman and Whitewell in 1814, the courtroom was always packed full of standing people. Those involved in trials mixed with the spectators. Some witnesses were deliberately held back and were dragged out by officers. Evidence was given from the front of the crowd and not always heard. The accused stood within a large square spiked box in the centre of the room with steps down to the cells. These can still be seen as can the box. It reopened in January 1825 and sessions held included the petty session judged by local magistrates and quarter session, which could range from theft to murder judged by circuit judges of the Crown. Those who left to be hanged went via the lodge gate right of the present entrance. The cart carrying the condemned pulled up outside the present entrance and they climbed aboard with a clergyman and sat on their own coffin which trundled off to Whitley Common to the gallows. The last was Mary Ann Higgins in 1831. Mary Ball left via the same door in 1849 but was hung from a drop gallows 15 feet to the right her execution was attended by 30,000 people. The courtroom was used for numerous meetings. In 1825, a meeting was held to discuss how to stop slavery. In February 1842, a large number of Coventry Chartists met here. The meeting, chaired by the mayor, discussed, among other things, the use of violence to make political points. It was also a meeting place for the city freemen. In 1936, the council acquired the hall and planned to demolish it under Gibson's plan, and in 1988, the courts were moved into Much Park Street. County Hall stood empty for many years a home to pigeons, but thankfully it survived and is now a bar restaurant called The Establishment. It was suggested that the 18th century prison governor's house become a visitor accommodation. It is set to become student accommodation according to the book Coventry in 50 Buildings. Thanks, Margaret. I'm sure there'll be some more of those before too much longer. Now, we have the second part of a piece about Roy Grace and the art of the car boot sale, and that's read by Bill. His latest book is deliberately lighter on murders than its predecessors. His debut, it's simple, featured a man buried alive in a coffin as a stag do prank. I was going to write about a serial killer in a hospital and I thought, this isn't the time. We were in a dark place with Covid and everything. We still are. Putin, the cost of living crisis, the price of oil and energy and all the rest. Equally, Grace, surname a nod towards the peaceful acceptance of his lot Roy is struggling towards, and his Lieutenant Detective Inspector Glenn Branson, made on screen by Richie Campbell, and slightly less to the fore in the new book. 
Is there a danger Roy gets so senior he might not be able to investigate anymore? That's why he's always resisted promotion, smiles Peter, even at detective superintendent level, which he is now. Majority would be just pen-pushing. There's nothing to stop them going out and getting their hands dirty, and that's what Roy loves doing. I know one former Sussex chief constable who liked to go out in a traffic car and stop people speeding himself. It's unlikely any other author working today has such a close relationship with the forces of law and order. Having met then Detective Inspector David Gaylor, often described as real-life Roy Grace, a quarter of a century ago, the pair became friends and later collaborators. At Open Doors, you've got to work at it. People ask how I've got this access. It's because I make a big effort. Long-standing patron of the Sussex Police Charitable Trust, he has to date sponsored three police cars in Brighton and Hove. I try to give something back by showing the world what it's really like to be a police officer. When they go out in the morning, they don't know if they're going to come back with their face intact, or even come back at all. They get spat at, picked, eaten, and they see the most terrible things. A friend of mine is a traffic officer in Sussex, and about ten years ago he got called to a suspicious-looking car opened the boot and found two dead children, aged two and three, inside. They'd been killed by their mother after a bitter divorce. He had to try and resuscitate them until the paramedics got there, and later go home and bathe his own children. When the public get angry, getting cross about a fraction of one percent of a quarter of a million people daily put their lives at risk, are not well paid, and do it as a vocation. That's why I'm defensive. Not to say he won't call out cops when necessary. What people want, above everything else, is to feel safe on the streets and in their homes. The police that lost that completely over the last 20 years, he admits. Far too woke, far too PC, Far too much time worrying about the criminals rather than the victims. Positives are, the police are, very largely, no longer institutionally racist, or homophobic, or sexist. And, by and large, women can have a proper career on equal terms with men. He adds, but I will always be critical if I need to be. His ITV hit adaptation Grace, with John Sim playing Roy. Has it changed anything as far as the books go, I wonder? I've always sat down to write and thought, Hi Roy, how are you today? Hey Glenn, how's your train crash marriage? Hi Norman, who did you mess around this week? Now I've got to know John Sim and Richie Campbell, and they're great guys. Craig Parkinson, who plays Norman Potting, and Zoe Tapper, Roy's partner Cleo. So when I sit down, I know exactly how they walk, talk, laugh, and so on. But if you'd sat me down in 2003, when the first book was published, 
with a photo-fit artist. Con would have come up as Roy and Richie as Glenn. The first five books have been done and with six, seven and eight being filled next year, there's every chance Grace will continue while great ratings soar. Will Peter, 74, the buzzing energy of a person half his age, ever find time to retire? As he starts to tell me about the new stage adaptation of short story Wish You Were Dead, starring casualties George Rainsford as Roy and I'm a Celeb winner Giovanni Fletcher as Cleo, due to open in February, it's clear work energises him. I joked that if I retired, I'd just write a book, but there's not much point, he chuckles. I remember the late Wilbur Smith being asked if he planned to retire. He replied, when they lower me into my coffin, my arm will come out and write on the side, the end. I think my mum was working up until a few hours before she died. She was the Queen's glove maker. And as she got older, she cultivated younger friends. She said, old people are so dull. No disrespect. I think it's important to be in touch across the generations. Today, he credits his marathon-running wife, Lara, 44, keeping him young and in touch. The couple spend the majority of their time on Jersey, with a menagerie of animals. Among Peter's fans... Perhaps the most famous is the Queen Consort, who makes a long-awaited appearance in the new book, joining her husband, the then Prince of Wales, in presenting Roy with a gallantry medal. Miller came down and interviewed me on the set of Grace earlier this year, and I didn't tell her she was going to be in the new book, Peter admits. I've kept it as a surprise, and I'm waiting for her to spot it. I did jokingly ask, would you like to be a character in Grace? And she replied, I could be a dead body. I have so much respect for her. Here she is, our new queen, one of the few high-profile people actually supporting books. She goes from humble Roy Grace to Booker Prize winners to Dickens and Tolstoy. She's a proper fan. Thank you, Bill, for that. I've never been to a car boot sale. I'm trying to get rid of things, not acquire any more, but perhaps I should go one day. Um, now, we have, yes, another short story written by Cynthia Townsend, and this one is called A Special Cat. Freddy was like no other cat. In fact, he was part dog, part human, part cat. We were looking for a companion for our three-year-old tabby and white cat, Sophie, who we thought would benefit from having some company. I had previously had cats in pairs, and it seemed only natural to get a friend for her. We got in touch with various cat charities, and one in particular seemed the right one. The cats who were looking for new homes were living with foster carers. We were given an address not far away, where there were several cats looking for new homes. We turned up at the house, and were greeted enthusiastically by the homeowner who asked us to shut the door quickly so none of the cats would run out. When we got into the living room, it was chaotic. Cats everywhere. To a cat lover like me, it was like I'd died and gone to heaven. 
There were cats of all colours and shapes and sizes. Some were racing around. Others were content just to sit on a sofa and curl up. Others were curious as to who the new people were and came to check us out and have a good sniff. We sat down on the sofa and a white and tabby cat, who seemed to be just legs, came bounding over the furniture towards us and plonked himself on my husband's knee and started purring. I think we found our cat, he said, and true enough, we had. The cat, Harley, had chosen us, and we liked the look of him, and he certainly liked the look of us. So once we'd paid the adoption fee and did all the paperwork, we made arrangements for him to be delivered to us after he's had his health check at the vet's, which was later that day. The only big hurdle was Sophie. She'd been used to being an only cat, and even though we had given a home to a much older cat when Sophie was younger, she didn't really have that much in common with him, and left him to sleep all day, which is the only thing he wanted to do. Harley, on the other hand, was a little bit younger than Sophie, so we thought they'd be a good fit. The first thing we did was to change his name. He didn't look like a Harley to us. We thought he looked more like a Freddy, so Freddy it was. We let him out of his box, and he went straight to the food bowl. Sophie ran up towards him and started growling at him, which startled Freddy, and he backed away, and she put her head straight down and started eating his food. Freddy, being the young pretender, decided to let her carry on and only went back to the bowl to eat after she'd finished. This was to set the pattern for the rest of their lives together. Sophie always got first dibs. Now, I wouldn't say they disliked each other. They just didn't interact as much as we'd hoped. Sophie was smaller but feisty, and she would often clip Freddy round the ear with her paw should he dare have the cheek to walk past her. When we used to go on our annual holiday, this was the only time they spent any real time together at the cattery. They were put in a family pen and had nowhere to hide. They had to get on because they got no choice. The kennel maid said that they got on great, no trouble at all. They ate together, slept together and played together. But as soon as our week was up and they were both brought home, peace ended and the hostility began all over again as if the past week had meant nothing. It was hilarious. Growls, scuffs round the ear, chasing each other round the house, and sleeping as far away from each other as they could. They would occasionally sleep together on the mat, and rub noses, but not that often. Sophie died aged twelve from leukaemia, and overnight it was like Freddy was transformed. He found his voice, he became more self-confident and very clingy, as if he was holding back on giving out too much fuss, in case Sophie didn't approve. Freddy was such an affectionate cat, and I think he thrived on being the only one. That's why we didn't feel the need to get another. Freddy was also very sensitive. He picked up when you weren't feeling well, and would come and sit with you and not leave your side. He'd either lie at your feet or across your chest, and gently purring all the time, as if to reassure you that you're going to be okay. We always knew he was in tune with us, but something our neighbour told us confirmed that he was aware of the feelings of others as well. 
Our neighbour had a little girl who was born with heart problems and wasn't expected to live very long, a year at the most. However, she defied the odds and lived until the age of six. A few days after the funeral, our neighbour was sitting in her garden on a bench, quietly sobbing to herself. Our cat, Freddy, heard her, jumped up onto the bench and sat next to her. He extended his paw and then put his head on her lap. She said it was almost as if he knew that she was sad and needed a cuddle, and that was a Freddy kind of cuddle, and she told us how it touched her. It made us so proud, but I wasn't surprised. I knew Freddy was a caring cat, and this act of compassion just proved it. He was always doing things like this, and he was also very obedient, something you wouldn't find in a cat. But you could trust Freddy. He wouldn't run off. He wouldn't be out for very long. And when he'd been to the vet and you brought him back in the car, I could open his cat carrier and let him out, and he'd jump out of the car and trot up the drive and sit at the front door waiting for me to come and let him in. As I said, part human, part dog, part cat. Freddy was one when we had him, and he was 15 when he died. He had a tumour in his mouth which was inoperable. And when the day came for us to say goodbye, the vet came to our house to put him to sleep. It was what he would have wanted, surrounded by his toys and his dad nearby and lying in my arms. He'd been such a kind and loving cat and showed such compassion to others that we wanted to do this for him. The lanky little cat who chose us to be his parents is now buried in his favourite spot in the garden. And although he's buried next to Sophie, I'm sure it is a final resting place that they're both getting on in kitty heaven. I know that we'll never get another cat like Freddy. But when the time comes for us to have another one, we will wait to be chosen and hope we're lucky a second time. I do hope you enjoyed that. Do you let us know what you think about Cynthia's short stories? Because we've got quite a few of them and they are quite interesting. But we'd like to hear your thoughts about them. Now, Nigel might not be with us this week, but he hasn't left us with nothing to do. He's reading an article here about the history of Hadrian's Wall. There is a possibility of an independent Scotland, though that seems less likely recently. However, with tongue-in-cheek... I thought it would be interesting to consider Hadrian's Wall as a possible contender for the border should independence ever happen. Permanent conquest of Britain began in AD 43. By about AD 100, the northernmost army units in Britain lay along the time Solway Isthmus. The forts here were linked by a road, now known as the Stanegate, between Corbridge and Carlisle. Hadrian came to Britain in AD 122, and according to a biography written 200 years later, put many things to right, and was the first to build a wall 80 miles long from sea to sea to separate the barbarians from the Romans. The building of Hadrian's Wall probably began that year, and took at least six years to complete. The original plan was for a wall of stone or turf, with a guarded gate every mile, and two observation towers in between, and fronted by a wide, deep ditch. Before work was completed, 
14 forts were added, followed by an earthwork known as the Vellum to the south. The inscription on the Ilma Pan, a 2nd century souvenir of Hadrian's Wall found in 2003, suggests that it was called the Vellum Aelii, alias being Hadrian's family name. The wall was placed slightly north of the existing line of military installations between the River Tyne and the Solway Firth. Its line was carefully chosen to make best use of the topography, and it was surveyed from each end towards the middle, or rather towards the crags in sections. Building in the east started at the point where the road from the south, Deer Street, met the wall, and where later a gate, the port gate, was erected. As first planned, most of the wall was to be built in stone, but the eastern 30-mile section was in turf. In front of both was a substantial ditch, except where crags or rivers made this unnecessary. At each mile, a gate was protected by a small guard post called a mile cast. Before the first plan was completed, radical change led to the placing of forts on the wall line and down the Cumbrian coast, and the construction of an earthwork to the south. The forts, each apparently built for a single unit and at a basic spacing of seven and a third miles, were placed astride the wall wherever possible. This allowed three main gates, each with two entrances, making the equivalent of six mile castle gates to provide access to the north. The double portal south gate was supplemented by two small side gates. The position of the forts and the provision of so many gates suggests that the requirement for increased mobility led to this change. Hadrian's Wall was built by the Army of Britain, as many inscriptions demonstrate. The three legions of regular trained troops in Britain, each consisting of about 5,000 heavily armed infantrymen, provided the main body of men building the wall, but they were assisted by the auxiliary units, the other main branches of the provincial army, and even by the British fleet. The complex building programme took many years to complete. It is possible that it started before Hadrian's arrival in Britain in AD 122, and the major change in plan was a result of his intervention. Although mainly built by legionnaires, the war was manned by auxiliaries. They were organised into regiments, nominally either 500 or 1,000 strong, and either infantry or cavalry, or both. The 500 strong mixed infantry and cavalry units was the workhorse, workforce of the frontier. Each fort on the wall appears to have been built to hold a single auxiliary unit. The troops based in the forts and mile castles of the wall were mostly recruited from the northwestern provinces of the Roman Empire, though some were from further afield. Army units tend to be accompanied by camp followers. Little is known about these people in the early years of the war. It would appear that they were not allowed to settle in the zone between the wall and the vallum. Excavation has demonstrated the existence of civil settlements in the 3rd century, and geophysical survey has recorded the urban sprawl spreading well beyond the forts. These remains are undated, however. The forts on Hadrian's Wall had a long life of nearly 300 years. Many modifications took place to the barrack blocks, the headquarters building, and the commander's houses in particular. Some forts became overcrowded with buildings. 
others acquired open spaces. So as far as we can demonstrate, all continue to the end of the Roman Britain, and that is into the early 5th century. The latest coins found on Hadrian's Wall were minted in AD 403-406. With the abandonment of Britain by the central authorities, it is less clear what happened. At Berneswald, a case has been made for life at the fort continuing, with the regimental commander perhaps turning into a local chieftain. In the years that followed, Hadrian's Wall became a quarry for the stone to build castles and churches, farms and houses along the line, until the conservation movement in the 18th and 19th centuries put a stop to that. It was only from the middle of the 19th century onwards that the archaeologists and historians such as John Clayton, John Hodgson and John Collingwood Bruce began to study Hadrian's Wall in earnest and sought to protect its still magnificent remains. Now that's somewhere else I haven't been. One of these days I'll have to go and visit all these places, won't I? Um, right, now Sarah's back with us again, so she's been busy getting ready for the programme this week. She continues her talk with David Alcock and finds out how to join the blind football team in which he plays and helps to organise. So David, hopefully we've whetted a few of our listeners' appetites. You certainly whetted mine, but I just need to get my broken leg a little bit more healed. But then hopefully, you never know what you might see. So if people are interested, how can they contact you? Okay, the, the way to get in touch with us at the minute is via email. Um, we're looking for... Sort of expressions of interest mainly because we need to get the equipment. Um, unfortunately, that's where the expense comes in. We can't just go to a sports shop and buy a normal football. No. Um, as how does the ball work? I assume it's got a sound in it. It has, yeah. Um, people will be familiar with the, the ball with the bell in. Um, we can get hold of those, um, but as technology is advancing, there's now a newer ball on the market, which is double the price of a ball with a bell in. Of course. But um, it's got a little sound chip in, so that the ball is always making a sound when it's on the move. Right. Um, it's an advancement on the ball with the bell, because the bell will make the initial noise, but I found testing them, you lose where it is once it moves until it makes contact with something else. Right. The ball with the chip in is constantly making a noise, so, mm. so it, it makes it a lot easier for people to play. Um, and it's a lot easier to track where it is. Right. And that's what we're looking for. The, with the enclosed pitches, the ball will always bounce off the wall. So the ball with the bell will be fine, but with the yes. size of the pitches, you might lose it halfway. Yeah. And what we don't want is people running around looking for the ball and not hearing where it is. So um, we'd rather get the, the best that we can to give people the most fun when they come to us. And because I'm a bit of a wood, I'm going to ask this. Do you have any padding or anything on the goalposts? Because I've seen in... You know, full football, yeah. some hellish head collisions, and this is recited people. Yes, uh, the ball, the, the, the goals itself, they are not your full size. They're more of your, I'd probably say medium height. Uh, I'm six foot four, and I'm about just touching the head, the, the, the crossbar with my head. Right. So the, they're not too wide, they're about six foot by four foot, mm -hmm. thereabouts. Um, 
sadly they're not padded but if that is something that people would feel better I'm sure we could stick something to it on the day. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not a problem. I've I've had goalposts in incredibly uncomfortable areas for a male. Um, <laughs> it's not quite <laughs> enough of that, I think. Yeah, I can totally totally understand why uh, why people would be concerned by that. Right. So, how do people express their interests? If they send an email to fcequalise at gmail dot com. So that's fcequalise at gmail.com and I assume there's no dots or anything no. or capital letters in the fcequalise. No, all lowercase. Right. Um, and then if they just ad- ad- address it to Barn, who's the gentleman who runs the whole of fcequalise, mm-hmm. um, and that, that really will get us started because if at the minute there's just Barn and myself. So the more people that express an interest, we can then go to the sporting grants with a lot more weight behind us. Right. We don't mind funding it ourselves, but our main team on a Friday are struggling. Right. So it's we want to be able to get as much grants into the club because the whole idea is to not ask anybody to pay. We, we so, don't want that. So when you talk about your main team, yeah. what... Is that um, the general... General free football sessions. Um, they're held more or less every day, but the, the, the main guys, the, the 16 to 20 players that right. we get, they'll come on a Friday evening. So that's not the one for visually impaired? No, that will always be held in the daytime. Um, Good. Because I've found that I struggle with floodlights. Oh, tell um, me about it. I, I struggle sometimes with lampposts. Yes, it, it, it's like lighting a candle in my eyes. It's very yeah. hard, so it yeah. will be done in the daytime. Yeah. Um, it's very open, very well right. spaced. Um, I mean, myself personally, um, along with my partner, we run a disabled sensory room for Coventry City Football Club. Now that stage. brings me on to my final question. Who's your team? It's, oh yes, I'm a homeboy. Um, I love Cov. Yeah. And through doing the mental health project with the Sky Blues in the community, uh, I was offered the opportunity to run match day sensory rooms. So families with disabled children, whether it be blind children, autistic children, physically disabled, mm-hmm. they can all come as a family and enjoy the football, oh, which is something that they wouldn't be able to do normally. And it's been such uh, experience and feel good for me and I was concerned when I lost my sight whether they'd let me continue and the football club have been amazing they've said nothing's off the table if you need this that or anything just say we'll make it happen well I tell you what listeners I think if David goes on talking positively like this much more you'll have a new presenter of sports (laughs) Thank you very much for coming in, David. It's been lovely. So maybe we have got some budding footballers out there. Now you know how to join in the team. So that's just about it for another week. But we will, of course, be back next week. So it's goodbye from me, Sheila Allen.